Amen. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We saw that there's a, there's a, a remarkable shift in the book of Matthew right around the Right around chapter 16, where all of a sudden Jesus brings his disciples to a crucial point and he asks them the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then right after that pronouncement that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God, that he is uh, the savior of the world. Jesus shifts in his teaching with the disciples and said that after these things, he told them how much he must suffer at the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees. He began telling them all the ways that he must go to Jerusalem. He must be handed over into the hands of wicked men and he must be, uh, he must be crucified, but he tells them that he will raise from the dead. And then we continue a little bit further into 17 and he tells them again a second time. He tells them, I must go to Jerusalem. I must be crucified, but I will be raised again. And here we come to chapter 18 where Jesus is teaching his disciples of what it means to be that suffering servant. That he isn't just the king. He is the king, but he rules not by conquering, not by external power, but he rules by laying down his life. And here in chapter 18, we have an interesting, interesting uh, story with the disciples. The disciples are easy to pick on in, in the Gospels. They're easy to, to zero in on because they're almost, like, uh, they're almost like the three stooges, except there's 12 of them, right? Uh, and, and they're always doing things, and you're thinking, man, are y'all learning anything at school? Y'all are living with Jesus. Y'all are walking with him every day he's teaching you. And, and I'm wondering, are you picking it up? Except... That how often do you and I fall more in line with the disciples? You and I have not just been walking with Jesus for three years. We've been walking with him for many years. And we often fall into the same mistakes that the disciples fell into. In chapter 17, we see the great story of Jesus going on top of the mountaintop and be transfigured before uh, Peter, James, and John. They come back down the mountain and Jesus tells them, if you have faith the side of a mustard seed, you can command that mountain and that mountain will move. And here, in Matthew chapter 18, it begins by this. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's the question. Who's the greatest? Well, I have a different question for us today that I think Jesus is going to address. We want to ask the question, how, how do you and I meet the requirements for the kingdom of heaven? That's a good question, right? I'm always, as a pastor, I'm always, uh, uh, I'm always surprised, caught off guard by the many people who have countless questions about the imponderables of scripture. Uh, those questions that are things like, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? You know, they want to know those questions, right? They want to know those specific questions that don't hinge on anything. So what if they did? So what if they didn't? But they want to know those questions. But those same people haven't answered the question of the Bible. How must you be saved? Have you been born again? Those same people, they, they want to wrestle with the, with the minutia. 
because the main question is too difficult to wrestle with. And here, the question is, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? But Jesus is going to turn it around. He's going to give us the requirements for the kingdom of heaven. How do we meet those requirements? How do we meet those requirements? Well, I think there are at least three requirements in this passage, chapter 18. We begin by reading the passage. We begin in verse 1, and we read this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptation come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand causes your foot or if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. We know that the word of God is living and breathing. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce between soul and spirit of joints and marrow, even dividing the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So before we consider this passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray today that you would help us as we study it, open our eyes and our hearts to your truth. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we seek to glorify you, to know you, to love you. We pray, Father, that you would remove all the obstacles, all the barriers that would stand in our way, and that we would see you today. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a question that could keep us up at night. In fact, if you look today, there's a phrase that, that, that is uh, found just about in any sports context. Whether you're talking about football, which I don't want to talk about, or baseball, or, or basketball, or the Olympics, anyone, it doesn't matter. Any, any sports context, there's a phrase that goes around. Maybe you've heard it. It's an acronym, GOAT. Anybody heard that before? Ever heard someone called the GOAT? That's a younger phrase. But it means this, greatest of all time. The greatest of all time. Who's the GOAT? Who's the greatest of all time? Whether you're talking about Olympics, whether you're talking about uh, baseball or any other sport, you want to ask that question. Who's the, who's the best who has ever done it? Who's the greatest? Well, that phrase gets thrown around a lot. Because just yesterday, the first full Saturday of college football, there were redshirt freshmen who were showing out against nobody teams. And the announcer says, oh, they really are the GOAT today, aren't they? What are you talking about? They played one game. They played one great game, and they're the greatest of all time now. We throw that around, and, and often we do that in our own lives, right? 
We, no one walked into church today, kicked down the door, and looked at everybody and said, I'm the GOAT, right? No one said, I'm the greatest of all time at this church. There's never been a church member like this ever to sit in the pew of Midway Baptist Church. No one did that today. Often, how often do we, often, we, we elevate ourselves over those around us? And here the disciples are falling into this trap. Who's the greatest, Jesus? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Notice what Jesus does. He turns it around. He brings a child into their midst, and he says this, Truly I say to you, unless you turn, unless you, right, specifically, you, you disciples, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice what Jesus does. They ask the question, they presuppose that they are in the kingdom of heaven, and they ask the question, Who's the greatest? Now that we're in, how can I be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus turns it around and says, unless you do something, unless something happens to you, you won't even get in the kingdom of heaven. Let's not talk about who the greatest is until you are sure that you are in the kingdom of heaven. So, what are our requirements? There are requirements for anything, right? Prerequisites to get into anywhere. Whether you're talking about a club at school or, uh, or uh, maybe even uh, just a country club in the community, there are some requirements that you have to meet. Well, so the same goes for heaven. Not everybody gets in. So what are, what are at least three requirements that we see here in the text in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Well, the first one we see is that you have to be little. You have to be little. He tells them, he brings a child in their midst and he tells them, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become like children. What is he asking there? What is he, what is he commanding there? Is he saying that we ought to have childlike ignorance? No, I don't think he's talking about uh, childlike ignorance. It's amazing to me having young children to find out what they don't know. You know, you just kind of think that everybody knows that, except... At one time, you didn't know it, and at one time, I didn't know it. We had a childlike ignorance about us, so we asked questions, and we had so many questions. In fact, if you have a three-year-old or have ever had a three-year-old, you find out they have so many questions. Everything is a question. Why? 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 Why is the sky blue? Why can't I have that? Why can't I do that? Why this? Why that? And there's so many questions that you have. There's, there's, there's an ignorance there. And that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that we ought to have an ignorance about us. Instead, I think what he's commanding is not a childlike ignorance, but a childlike simplicity. A childlike trust. And I remember when, uh, when Knox was uh, a little bit younger, uh, we, anywhere we went, if someone stopped, if you have a baby, people are going to talk to you. I found that out. If you don't like people talking to you, don't have a baby. Uh, but if you have a baby, people are going to talk to you. Because people love children. And so we'd go to Walmart, and uh, there'd be these, these nice uh, older men or nice older women. They'd walk up, and they'd say something like, oh, he's so cute. What's your name? And, and Knox would tell him his name. And, and then they'd hold out their hands, and Knox would nearly jump out of our arms to go into the arms of a stranger. And we'd think, he's going to run away with a stranger one day. He has, there's no fear. There's, there's a simplicity to that. There's a trust to that. That There is no one who's bad. There is no one who wants to hurt. No, instead, I'm going to trust without question. And there seems to be some of that here in this passage. He's telling these disciples, these disciples who care for their own pride, who care for their own standing, he says, no, don't be concerned 
about those things, turn, repent, and become like these children who are not concerned about who is the greatest, but who are concerned with simply being in the midst of Jesus. There's a simplicity there, a littleness there, that you and I must have if we are to enter into the kingdom of heaven. A littleness. He continues on in verse 5. He says, Whoever receives one such, as, uh, one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be greater to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus has some strong words about what we do with these little ones. And I think it's helpful for us not to just think of these uh, physical children. I think there is that involved here. Jesus is saying those that uh, accept little children, accept the least of these into their midst and love them and care for them, lift them up, those are also receiving Jesus at the same time. Those who reject them and cause them to sin and cast them away, he says it would be better for a stone to be tied to your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That is helpful to see that Jesus is talking uh, literally there, right? There's a literalness there. We are to take care of those who are little, to lift them up. But I think there's something else there. I think what Jesus is showing us is that there must be a figurative littleness about us. Those who are great will not enter the kingdom of God. Those who are big in their own minds will not enter the kingdom of God. In order to get into the kingdom of God, there is a stooping that must take place. There is a humility that must take place. There is a littleness that must take place. This is why Jesus said elsewhere, I did not come to heal the well, because the well have no need of a physician. There must be a confession of humility. Indeed, that's what salvation is, right? That's what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. We confess that we cannot save ourselves, that we in ourselves cannot earn enough to enter the kingdom of God. We can't do enough to enter into the kingdom of God. We can't say enough. We can't serve enough. We can't love enough. We can't do any of those things enough to earn the kingdom of God. We just can't do it by ourselves. And that's one thing that my three He says, I can't do it. I can't do it. Yes, you can. Can you do it before? No, I need your help. And there's a stubbornness there. The other day, he was sitting on a higher stool that he has climbed up and climbed off several times, and yet he would not move. I can't do it without you. And there's this stubbornness about a child that says, no, I need, I need outside help. I need something else. I can't do it myself. This is what Jesus is telling the disciples. Do you need Jesus? Many of us want, we want the blessings of Jesus, but we don't actually want the interference of Jesus. We want the blessings of heaven. We want those things out there that Jesus promises. No one here, no one would say, yes, I want, uh, I want the consequences of an eternal curse in hell on top of me and my family. That's what I want. That's what's best for us. No one would say that. We all want the benefits of heaven. We want to see those people that we love who have, who have died in the Lord. We want to see them one day again in heaven. But the question is, do you just want heaven? Or do you want Jesus? Do you want Jesus? Do you need Jesus? Is 
he just an added benefit to your life? Or is he essential to our life? The first way that we get into the kingdom of God is we must be little. We must humble ourselves, turn and become like a child. And he continues on. He gives us the second requirement. He follows this idea of uh, causing a little one, a, a, a child, to stumble. And he says this, Woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptation come. In other words, temptation happens. We know that this happens. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So we think about it today. In those days, as well as our days, we have a system by which we, we rank people. We do it. And when we meet somebody, we're going to compare ourselves naturally. We are creatures of comparison. We're going to compare ourselves to them. We're going to start asking questions. We're going we're gonna to see. We're going we're gonna to see, all right, well, am I smarter than them? Am I taller than them? Am I better than them? We are creatures that are so, uh, so quick to comparison. And often it's those that can offer the least that we lower to the bottom of the list. And as in our day and their day, someone who is crippled, someone who is lame, someone who is blind, they are automatically less. And it would be natural to see those people on the side of the road begging for alms and to walk right by. Ignore the need and to continue on for the bottom end of society. In fact, if you even go back to that around that same time period, a few a hundred years before that, you have uh, the, the nations of Greece, like uh, the nation of Sparta, who if a child was born and if the child had an imperfection, they would take that child and they would put it out to exposure and they would leave it outside to die because it was imperfect. It was lame. It was blind. It was crippled. Those things today, those, those are not things that we desire to be, right? No one in here says, yes, I wish I were more blind. I wish I was more crippled. I wish I was more lame. But Jesus tells us that the second requirement to entering into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the first one is to be little. The second one is to be lame. To be lame. What does he mean? Well, he teaches by comparison here. He says, it is better to become lame than to enter hell forever. It is better to become blind to be thrown, or than to be thrown into eternal fire. It is better to be crippled. It is better to be lame. It is better to be blind. Jesus is saying here that those who are, who are able to enter into the kingdom of God, those are the ones that understand their great need. And it's amazing to me that we don't really realize uh, the benefits of being whole until something is taken away. Let your back seize up just a little bit for a week. And it makes you really realize the benefits of what a non-hurt back is, right? I imagine none of us thinks about what it would be like if one of our feet was broken. We don't think about that until one day we break a foot and we realize, oh, this is difficult. Oh, I needed both of these feet. We don't realize what our big toe does until we stub it and break it and we can't use it, right? When we become lame, we realize uh, we realize the uh, 
the benefit of what it means to be whole. And the same goes for salvation. We don't realize, we don't realize if we already believe ourselves to be whole, we are like the church of Laodicea that Jesus says they are blind, but they think they can see. They, they believe themselves to be rich, but they're poor. And Jesus tells us here, it is better to confess, to confess our weaknesses to enter into the kingdom of God than to blindly assert that we are whole and jump headfirst into hell. Now, this is obviously talking about temptation as well. And this is the idea, right? With temptation to sin. Are we tempted to sin? If we are tempted to sin, then we understand it is better to cut things out of our life that we think are necessary than to keep them in our life and allow them to drag us to hell. Jesus is saying it is better to become lame than to walk with two feet into the hellfire. Last but not least, he tells us that the last requirement for us to enter into the kingdom of God, first, we must be little. Second, we must be lame. And last but not least, we must be lost. Verse 10, he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you, in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over ninety-nine who never went astray. So it is that not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. How do we enter the kingdom of God? How do we enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, we, we must understand our lostness. Here it is. Jesus says, the man who has a hundred sheep, one of them goes astray. He will go out of his way to find that one, to find that lost sheep, to bring him back. And there will be much rejoicing over one lost sheep than the 99 who did not go astray. And here's the good news. The good news for us is that every one of us, the Bible proclaims, our lost. We are lost from eternity. We were lost from birth. We are separated from God. And for us who are believers and have been believers for years, we forget what it's like to be lost. We forget what it's like. We forget what it's like that the grace of God came down to us. That God left the 99 in search of the one so that we would not perish but have eternal life. And so because we have forgotten what it means to be lost, because we have forgotten what it, what it meant to be separated from our Father, we elevate ourselves and we ask that question, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? And instead, Jesus is teaching the disciples that the real question is not who is the greatest. The real question is who is in the greatest need? Who is in the greatest need? Jesus says, truly, if he finds this one lost sheep, one lost sheep, he rejoices more it than over the, the 99 that never went astray. So the Father desires that not one of these little ones would perish. So how do we enter the kingdom of God? We humble ourselves. We are little. We confess our inadequacies. We are lame. And last but not least, we remember that we were lost and are in a great need of a Savior. So what does that have to do with you and I? You and I, who most of us grow, grew up in this church or grew up in a church, and uh, you and I at a young age, uh, we confessed our sins, we trusted in Jesus, and, and now what? Well, you and I have been walking with Jesus for at least two, maybe three years, at least. 
So we've dealt with those questions, right? We've dealt with the big question. So now we can ask the question, who's the greatest? Is that how it works? Do we graduate from the gospel? Do we graduate away from this question of, uh, of who has the greatest need? Do we graduate away from the question of, have you been born again? Do we graduate away from that so we can find other things to deal with? The answer is no. We don't graduate away from that. We don't graduate from the gospel. No, that gospel becomes our life that reminds us that every day we have to humble ourselves. And every day we look for areas in our life that are causing us uh, hurt and causing us to sin. And we cast those away from our life. And then we remember that the Father pleased Him so much to save us. And how much more He used us to save others. We see here that this is, this is the message of the gospel, that we, we continue to proclaim this not only to our neighbor who is in need, but we proclaim it to ourselves. How do we enter the kingdom of God? How do we stay in the kingdom of God? We stay by confessing our sins, trusting in Jesus, and following Him. We follow Him and we believe. We believe that Jesus meant it when He said the Father rejoices when one is saved. And so we join the Father in what pleases Him. And we proclaim this gospel to the least of these, the little ones, the lame ones. We proclaim it to the lost ones. And we don't forget where God has taken us from. We don't forget where we are going. Here Jesus is teaching His disciples that here, Jesus, the King of the world, He could have sat down in any palace and demanded all the riches of the world. But instead, He brings a child in His midst. And He uses the child as an example. And he lifts up the child, he lifts up the little, he lifts up the lame, and he lifts up the lost. And so his church does as well. We follow Jesus in this mission. Let's pray. For your word. We pray this morning that you would help us. Help us to confess our great need of you. Help us to trust in you, knowing that you are, um, you are full of love and full of we pray this morning that you would, um, you would convict us, that you would bring us into your presence, and that you would work mightily in our lives and in the life of our church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.